welcome to Hot Take, the podcast where we examine the climate crisis and the climate conversation. I'm Amy Westervelt. And I'm Mary Anais Hegler. And if you listened to our last show, you know that this is our season one finale. After this, we're going to be taking a little hiatus, but actually not that much of a hiatus because... We're launching a newsletter. <laughs> Exciting. <laughs> yes, that's right. We're throwing our hats into the newsletter ring, but we will be providing something distinctly different from all of the other climate mm-hmm. newsletters, which we've raved about before on this show. They are all really great and a good kind of new mm-hmm. way to get climate information, but most of them focus on reporting and science and politics. We're going to focus on storytelling, climate narrative, what we're seeing, what's getting covered, the stories that we particularly love of a given week. And if you sign up for that newsletter, you will be helping us to fund season two. So please go ahead and do that. We'll stick a link in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. And it'll kind of be like a news digest of like all the great climate writing that's out there. I know a lot of folks want to read about it, but don't really know where to find it. And sometimes, especially in the time of COVID, it can be hard to get your hands on it. Um, so we're going to streamline that process for you and give you like reading lists more often um, because that's how we roll. Yeah. Um, and if you sign up for that newsletter, you'll get access to special mini episodes that we'll be releasing while we're on hiatus. So you won't have to miss our voices all that much. That's right. And we'll still be active on Twitter in the meantime, too. And we do plan on being back with season two in just a couple of months. So it's really not that long of a time. Exactly. And what even is time right now? Like, I dare somebody to define time. Seriously, Right. I have no fucking idea. I don't know. I don't know. There's <laughs> literally no way to know. But even though we're not really leaving you, this is still a special episode for us. We made it to the end of season one. That's so right. we thought it would be nice to do it with just the two of us. So this time there's no guests. It's just me and Amy. That's right. And we're celebrating it with trying to get my my ice clinking there. (laughs) Some rum. That's right, folks. (laughs) We're drinking rum. We've been quarantined for more than a month. Who knows when it's ending and the climate is a wreck. So it's rum a fucking clock, y'all. Exactly. (laughs) Amy, what do you have? (laughs) Mm. I have a dark and stormy, a very large one. I'm drinking out of a pint glass uh, and it has a lot of rum in it and a splash of ginger beer. (laughs) splash of ginger beer. It's fucking awesome. Um, I could not find ginger beer near me, so I made a rum Negroni. Um, And, you know, it's working out. It's working out. I do wish it was a dark and stormy, but um, you know what? You Mm -hmm. do what you can in these times. You know, you got to use what you have at hand. You know what I mean? And look, we definitely don't condone drinking as a primary coping mechanism. It's definitely not healthy, but it's the mechanism we're going to use on this particular episode on this particular day. That's right. Mm -hmm. And if you're not into drinking, we've got plenty of other fun things in this episode. For starters, Mary's brought a whole (laughs) raft of dad jokes. I did. I did. So at the beginning of quarantine, I asked Twitter to send me their best dad jokes and folks did not disappoint. They delivered. They delivered. So yeah, I'm going to read a few of them on the show because why the fuck not? Um, (laughs) Who couldn't use a good dad joke right now? Who couldn't use a good dad joke? We're going to rave. We're going to rave. It's going to be fun. All right. Let's do this.
All right, let's get right into themes and trends where we talk about like the major themes and trends. <laughs> I was trying to think of a better way to say that, but shit, there isn't. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yes. So one of the big things that's come out of a lot of the, the kind of climate and corona coverage is the role of misinformation or you know, aggressive mm-hmm. disinformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we saw a lot of good writing uh, coming out this month on that front. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think really what you're seeing is the lack of kind of scientific literacy in the U.S. public. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like that's very intentional, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like totally. The, I think... I think really like the climate denial folks have been trying to erode, you know, confidence in science and experts for a long, long time. And now we're seeing what happens when you do that. Like you have these groups of people that are like science is suspect, you know. Right. Right. (laughs) So one of the the stories I saw the past couple of weeks that really creeped me out was a story in the New York Times called Putin's Long War Against American Science. And it was all mm-hmm. framed around, of course, uh, coronavirus and, you know, undermining our faith in scientists and doctors in the National Institutes of Health, et cetera. And like making us believe the Ebola is somehow like part of some vast conspiracy or even that right. vaccines are part of um, some great conspiracy. And just the echoes of that for climate are just deafening. I think there was something in this story about him using, oh, yeah, it says secretive trolls and shadowy blogs that regularly cast American health officials as patronizing frauds. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> how yeah, familiar does that much- sound? I know, it's crazy. It's totally crazy that, that, yeah, it's so much the strategy that the fossil fuel industry has used for a long time. Um, And then, you know, there's this other really great story in Vox where Patrick Sharkey actually did some of his own data journalism Mm -hmm. um, and looked at, you know, what are what are some of the predictors of social distancing behavior and found that the the really like the strongest one is belief in or belief. I mean, just acceptance of climate science. Right. Um, And yeah, that piece is called the U.S. has a collective action problem that's larger than the coronavirus crisis. To me, the, the issue there is really like that you you know, I guess kind of starting in the 90s, really, um, we've had this total unraveling of any sort of shared thread of facts in this country Mm -hmm. that like there's no acceptance of like, okay, this is what the science says. And, um, you know, if it's been echoed by like hundreds or thousands of legitimate scientists, we accept that as, you know, generally our collective understanding of how this is working. <laughs> yeah. But it, and that's just been like decimated. Mm-hmm. But what, what Patrick like basically found out is you are more likely to comply with and agree with social distancing and, you know, right. basically believe what the scientists say about, about coronavirus if you believe in climate change. And the less right. you believe in climate change, the more likely you're, you know, you are to be out here protesting social distancing right. and claiming that is infringing on your right. rights or whatever. Be- a la right. Diamond because and you have 
Right. Because you have this mindset of like, you know, science is mm-hmm. wrong or corrupt right. or, um, you know, has an agenda or all of these things right. that are the talking points that like the, the these industries have been pushing for a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, not just even, not even, you know, a lot of the same guys that worked on climate denial have also worked for you know, Monsanto mm-hmm. saying you can't believe the science on pesticides or you yeah. know, pharmaceutical companies saying like, you know, you can't believe the science on opioids. Right. Uh, it's, right. It's kind of a, a rampant problem. So yeah. anyway, it's. Can I just like share one very delicious thought that has been like rotating in my brain for the past couple of like week or so? Please. So. Fox News has fired Diamond and Silk because, oh. you know, they haven't, as far as I know, they haven't come out and said it, but uh, it's a very strong indication that it's because of their spreading of false information around coronavirus. Interesting. And I've also heard that Fox News has been sued over, you know, the false information around coronavirus, or at least that they're very afraid of getting sued about that type of information. Now, Fox News has peddled a shit ton of misinformation totally. when it comes to climate. Yeah. And the thought of them getting sued for that. Yeah. Or having to fire some of their shitty ass anchors. Yeah. And shitty ass news runners or showrunners or whatever the fuck they're called mm-hmm. because they have endangered people's health by mischaracterizing and outright lying about climate change. That is a delicious thought to me. I know. I was thinking about that, too. Like, I wonder, um, I mean, I've been thinking about this a little bit because there's this um, there's a lawsuit in Massachusetts that should be going to trial at some point this year where the attorney general there, Maura Healy, has accused ExxonMobil of of basically fraud. And this isn't the first time that this has happened, but it's tended in the past to focus on investor fraud and get into the weeds on like, Hmm. you know, rules about shareholders and profits and, you know, risk assessments and all of this kind of financial stuff that I think, you know, in general, the public is like, I I don't get it, you know. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But in this case, she is really going after them for for basically false advertising. Mm-hmm. And she's invoking like the she's invoking some FCC rules and Federal Trade Commission rules and all of these different things that, you know, to get at basically greenwashing and misinformation. And that's kind of the first time that anyone has tried that in a legal setting. So it's going to it's going to be really interesting. And it does make me think of like, well, what about some of the, you know, news radio or Fox News shows that have sort of deliberately misinformed people? You know, um, could they not be mm-hmm. held legally accountable for that, too? I don't know. I mean, it is an endangerment of health to lie about climate change. Yeah. It's endangerment of long-term health yeah. for that. And, you know, I I do think it's an interesting twist to start to see viewers of Fox News as victims of propaganda as opposed to, you know, a horrible gun nuts. Yeah. Right? Because they, they are fed a crock of lies yes. all the time. Yes. Totally. So, you know, I that's sustaining me at this horrible point. You know, actually, <laughs> I mean, not for the first time. The, like, various court decisions are... Um, are, you know, kind of sustaining me in general right now. There was just a big, um, you know, there's been a lot of 
different hearings and court cases and whatever around the Keystone XL pipeline, which is a massive pipeline that's going from the U.S. to Canada. And it's uh, crossing, I don't know how many states. It's like four or five different states. And it's it's been like a big, you know, hotly contested thing for a long time. And there were a few different cases where, you know, permits were kind of revoked for this pipeline in different states. But then this big one just came out, this... Um, the last couple of weeks where this judge looked at it and he said, it's not just the Keystone XL pipeline. It's the entire way the U S army Corps of engineers rubber stamps, these pipelines that are going through wetlands and streams. And he revoked the entire like rule that they use. <laughs> so hmm. the oil and gas guys are freaking out right now. And actually the, the U S department of justice is, um, is like trying to appeal this decision because they're saying that this judge overstepped and it's really not his place to change, you know, how some department of the federal government does things. But his read is that basically this the way the U.S. Army Corps has been permitting pipelines in sensitive environmental areas is um, in violation of various environmental rules that we have so uh that mm, could be a mm-hmm. huge deal like the this one rule has been used to permit more than thirty-seven thousand energy projects in the last three years um oh just God. to give you an indication also, like like it's shout out to you for having these these numbers on the top of your head yeah yeah, yeah but people amy <laughs> westerbelt is a national treasure <laughs> I've got a data trap in my brain. But yeah, it's crazy to me. I'm just like, wow, that's that's a huge deal. And it's been actually like, you know, every couple of days there's some new court case that comes up that's like, that's moving things, you know, in favor of climate action. Yeah. D- to get back to, to the misinformation thing, though, is like, yes. you wrote a really great piece about this and in, in drilled about like, if you are feeling like you're having deja vu, as a climate person watching the misinformation around coronavirus, that's mm-hmm. by design. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. That is absolutely not ex- an accident. Um, and the yeah. name of the piece was the reason COVID-19 and climate seem so similar is disinformation. And right. yeah, I've got an excerpt here that I'm going to make you read. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we spent like the last season of Drilled kind of looking at... Mm-hmm. The particular people and firms that like came up with these disinformation strategies. And really what we learned mm-hmm. is that like, you know, um, they've deployed these strategies on behalf of lots of different industries. And now we're seeing some of the same people pop up in the, this like COVID hoax bullshit that we're, yeah. <laughs> we're seeing. So, OK, here's a little excerpt from this piece. The history is less that tobacco or oil embraced disinformation first and then passed it on, and more that a handful of PR firms and consultants created the disinformation industry and then put it to work on behalf of whatever industry needed it at any given time. Today, those same strategies are at work on behalf of those who worry that the response to COVID-19 will undermine capitalism. Which is why climate folks keep noting how familiar the whole anti-science component of the right-wing response to the pandemic feels. It's familiar because the exact same strategies are being deployed, in some cases, by the same people. Hmm. So, yeah, there's like a few 
specific little weasels that I, like, <laughs> I I follow to see what they're talking about. And they're all like all the same climate weasels are like calling out, you know, the models being used to predict COVID spread and like the, you know, calling for a lift on quarantine regulations mm-hmm. because they're bad for business and mm-hmm. that they're, you know, anti-American and mm-hmm. anti-freedom. And it's like all the same shit. Yep. So, yeah. 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 No, it's, it's, it's wild. It really does feel like a double gaslight, you know, because you feel like totally. you've been gaslit yeah. with all the climate disinformation and it feels like the climate movement kind of just found its footing um, to yeah. be able to like stand up to that type of shit. And now here comes coronavirus where like, look, I'm just as confused as most people. Like, yeah. I don't, I, there's a lot about this that I don't understand. There's a lot that the top experts yeah. don't understand. Um, yeah. Because we're like, imagine having the climate crisis unfold at this level of speed and this level of discovery at the same time. Right, right. So, yes. yeah, no. And so it's just such fertile ground for disinformation. So it's sort of like, the, I, and I think this is why I have such a frustration um, with the Democratic Party right now, because there's such an information gap and a leadership right. gap that they could be playing at the national role. And I know. So, I know. you know, misinformation is not an accident. Yeah. We know this from the climate fight. It's not an accident when it comes to Corona. It wasn't an accident when it came to climate. Ain't nobody out here telling nobody to drink Lysol. For no fucking reason. I mean, it's so, so crazy to me. Like, fucking Lysol had to issue a bunch of, like, please don't drink our product what? alerts. Isn't that how... Are you serious? Because, of course, I mean, it's smart. Their lawyers were probably like, we better get out in front of this. Because you know some fucking idiots are going to be like, Trump says. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yikes. Also, like, if you're finding Lysol to drink, send me some Lysol because I can't find some to spray down my countertops. True. True. Yeah, like I would really enjoy some Lysol to use responsibly right now. <laughs> <laughs> and like they should just put that shit on their bottle. Enjoy responsibly. Like, <sighs> oh, actually, they shouldn't because yeah. people would think that shit's a beer. It's bad. Oh. <laughs> Real bad. Real bad. Yeah. Real bad. So misinformation is one parallel. I wanted to draw our attention to another climate COVID parallel, which is that the rich people are going to abandon us. Yes, they will. Um, you Listen, know, like I if didn't get a specially screen printed T-shirt that says rich people suck for nothing. <laughs> I'm just pissed that you didn't get me one. <laughs> but- no, but for real. So, like, we've been reading for a little while now about all these rich people having their their little bunkers, or and a lot of them have been in New Zealand. I think it was his name, Fred Luntz, oh, yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like the the Republican strategist who manufactured all this climate denial after Trump got elected yep. was like, "I'm moving to New Zealand and I'm gonna live in a bunker." And now he believes in climate change, but it like. The damage is done, girl. Yeah. But anyway, I know. Um, I've been reading all of these articles about all of the super, super rich people moving out to their bunkers, most of them again in New Zealand, because a bunker is good for climate, a bunker is good for COVID, a bunker is the bunker. These bitches are 11 feet underground in New Zealand 
kicking it with like their little spaghettios cans. Yeah, totally. And their private their private staffs oh. of medical people. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And like yeah. Don't you know what all this talk about humans are the virus? These motherfuckers are the fucking virus. That is true. Yeah. Don't get it confused. These people don't want to reopen the economy because they want to go out and expose themselves to anything. They want laborers to go out and get sick if they have to to keep profits rolling in. Well, they right. kick back and sequester themselves in their motherfucking bunkers. Right. Like fucking naked mole rats. Yes. You're just like burled up underneath there. I was reading this article about, um, you know, this company that manufactures survivalist bunkers. And like they had all these multimillionaires calling them and being like, how do I get into this thing? So, (laughs) yeah. Meanwhile, also just to just to circle back to, uh, you know, the rant that we're going to have later on Michael Moore. These Michael fucking more. Michael fucking You Moore. mean? You want to talk about population control? Can we please have Silicon Valley douchebags stop breeding so fucking much? Thank you and good night. They breathe a lot. <laughs> they breathe so much, Amy. Like, I feel like we're not it's talking like about thing. how much these it's motherfuckers are breathing. Yes. I talked about this in my um, book that, like, it's become, I like, I... Uh, reported on on tech in Silicon Valley for a while. And it totally, it started becoming this whole, like, it's a weird sort of like masculinity, proving your mm-hmm. wealth. Like it's a signifier of things to have like lots of children if you're like a wealthy white person, which oh, of course fuck. you will be Gross. criticized for if you are a member of any other demographic. <laughs> right. Of course. <laughs> Of course, the people who are talking about uh, population control are always alive. Yes. And I just find that so interesting. You want the population controlled, yet you're part of the population. So who do you think should be volunteering for the guillotine? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because it's not you. Yeah. You know, like if you believe humans shouldn't be here, why the fuck am I looking at you? They never have an answer for that one. Never have a fucking answer for that one. Oh, Lord. Lord. But believe me, we're going to get into Michael Moore's ass. Oh, we're going to get there. That sounded graphic. That sounded graphic. That's true. But we're We're going to deal with him. We're going to get in there. Amy, how can you tell us a dad joke? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) When it becomes apparent. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) okay amy you've heard of alphabet soup now get ready for times new ramen oh my god that is a real dad joke real one (laughs) okay amy why does norway put barcodes on their battleships i don't know why so they can scandinavian That's one of the ones you got to say out loud before you get it. You got to say it out loud. Oh, God. Oh, boy. Okay, the next thing we're going to look at is it's not opportunism, it's opportunity. There has been the most annoying trend of the whole Mm -hmm. COVID moment is this notion that if you want to look at what's happening and look at the fact that the government is going to have to spend trillions of dollars to, quote unquote, reboot the economy, 
maybe we should talk about doing that in a better way than it's been done in the last hundred years. That somehow that is like playing identity politics and being opportunistic and, you know, trying to shoehorn the climate conversation into a global health pandemic as though those two things are not related in any way. It's really frustrating. Exactly. I talked about this on Heat It with Mm -hmm. uh, Emily Atkin um, Mm -hmm. and what what is so striking to me is that this is a tactic that was used against Black people for a really, really, really long time. Yeah. That their insistence on having civil rights and civil liberties like everyone else was somehow opportunistic. Yeah. Um, so if they were to bring up their right to live, it right. was like self-serving or or just like... They were bring. They were inserting it in places where it didn't deserve to be, as though their humanity had, like, there was a place where their humanity didn't deserve to be. Exactly. Um, or like, you know, you're always being accused of making things about race, and right. they're already about race. You're just making that more explicit. I'm not making right. shit about climate. It's already about climate. If we're right. gonna build a new world, why would we not make that new world climate safe? Why right. would we not deal with two existential threats with one stone? Like, explain to me one good reason why not to do that. Especially, like, this moment in time is actually a huge opportunity to, like, get through an energy transition that we all know is coming at some point and that will be painful whenever it does come because it is a big shift. The fossil fuel industry is imploding right now, not just because of coronavirus, but because it has been debt leveraged for years and it's built around a bad and broken business model. So you know what? Instead of spending trillions of dollars to like help them like limp along for another 10 years, like why wouldn't you put that money to work just transitioning? I don't understand. It doesn't, it's like a golden opportunity. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Let's make like mice and men take the fossil fuel industry out into the woods and shoot that bitch in the back of the head. <laughs> put it out of its misery. <laughs> Let's just Steinbeck this shit, yo. <laughs> Let's just do it. Put them and us out of our misery. Yes. Yes. Sometimes you got to let stuff die. Yes. Look, I get it. I've had a favorite toy before. Mm-hmm. I've been there. Yeah. I've had a computer that was on its last legs. Sometimes you got to let go. You know, you're in that relationship that's toxic. Well, you're not getting anywhere. Yes. You're not building each other up anymore. Yes. Let it go. Let There's it go. something better out there for you. Honestly, like I, I said this on Twitter, but giving the oil companies money right now is like when the time that Matt and I gave my father-in-law like a thousand bucks that was really like the last money in our bank account to pay a credit card bill. And he went bankrupt like the next week. <laughs> you know? That man was bad with money. Okay. He was bad with money. He was never going to get better with money. And like, you don't just throw money right. down a hole. Come on. Yeah. And as a country, I feel like we learned this in 2008, all right? Yep. Like, we learned about the shitty deals. Yep. Stop taking the shitty deals. There are other options out there. Yes. I promise you, you will yeah. find someone else. And maybe she'll have solar panels. Maybe she'll have <laughs> wind turbines. Maybe she won't fuck everything up. Yes. Maybe. You know? Like, just see what's out there. Get out there. Yeah. You've still got a bright future ahead of you. I know. I know. That's the thing is that like, 
it just, it's, it'd be one thing if it were just an environmental argument. And, I'm, you know, I'm using just lightly there. Like, the environmental argument is more than enough reason to, you know, mm-hmm. rethink things. But it also doesn't make financial sense. Like, it doesn't make any sense. They're basically, they're trying to, right now, they're tr- like the Federal Reserve is trying to basically change a bunch of rules to force banks into giving these mm-hmm. companies loans that don't make any sense. You know, it's like it's gone so far exactly. past the point of making any logical sense that like, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, it's like you guys are literally talking about restructuring the banking system and how the credit system works in favor of a failing industry that's also killing everybody. But we're yep. not supposed yep. to talk about just maybe we should use a different energy source. That's ridiculous to me. Right. Right. And that reminds me of this piece that was in um, the Rolling Stone, which again, yeah. killing it lately, killing, killing the game. Yes. Um, they they publish a piece called "The Green New Deal Is Cheap," actually. Yeah, and they make a lot of these really good points. I'm just going to read a quick paragraph from it. Um, it's by Tim Dickinson. He says the coronavirus is changing the world's comfort levels with massive expenditures. Fresh on the heels of a $2.2 trillion economic rescue package, President Trump has begun calling for another $2 trillion, $2 trillion infrastructure package to create jobs. Across the political spectrum, politicians are anticipating that the economy will need something approximating a new deal to spring back to life after the pandemic sus- subsides. And climate advocates are making the case that we can use the disaster response to invest in renewable energy to ward off even more dangerous crises down the line. The price of not acting on climate change is staggering. Yes. And I, I feel like there's been a lot of research on what it, what does that look like when you boil it down to dollars and cents. Right. If we don't do anything about climate, if we let climate get out ahead of us the way that we've let coronavirus get out ahead of us. Exactly. We've already let climate get out ahead of us. Exactly. That, to me, is the biggest parallel between climate change and coronavirus. Like, what we should be seeing in the handling or mishandling of the coronavirus epidemic in the U.S. Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. how much exponentially worse health outcomes, economic outcomes, everything gets when you know what you ought to be doing and you avoid it for a period of time, you know? Yeah. No, I was was really disturbed when I first started seeing this narrative come about in the early days of of the corona crisis of like, now is not the time. Like I was even hearing it from within the climate community Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that now is not the time to talk about corona or or to talk about climate action. And you were telling me earlier about some some research that you've seen about like climate coverage actually taking a big hit. Yes, it did. Yeah, there's a, a guy at University of Colorado at Boulder um, named Max Boykoff, who really looks at, you know, kind of climate communications, how people are talking about it. And he has kind of an ongoing survey looking at media coverage of climate. And he saw a pretty, you know, sudden and dramatic drop off in coverage of climate change in March. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, like a lot of newspapers were saying, oh, we can't cover that. I definitely heard from people who had stories killed 
because, yeah. you know, their editors were like, I, you know, no one is going to read this right now. And I don't know when yeah. that's going to change and blah, blah, blah. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I struggled with that myself. Like I was talking to someone earlier today and they were like, you've been writing a lot lately. Like actually a lot of that stuff I've been writing was written before. And it just took a while happened. for them to get it's it just, out. Yeah. 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 It just took a while. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was, yeah, that, that narrative was just so incredibly disturbing. And it was like, I thought we'd learn. I thought mm-hmm. we'd learn not to fall for this little okie doke because the fossil fuel industry sure as fuck isn't using this as an opportunity to be like, oh, now is not the time to advance our interests. Oh, yeah. So they were we on it day stop one. advancing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, we stop advancing our interests, which is our interest of preserving life on Earth. Like, hello, have you forgotten what the fuck we're fighting for? Right. Um, we don't... We stop that at our own peril and at the peril of everyone else because the climate crisis is not stopping. Right. You I know, mean, like, that's if the we thing. take our eye off of it, that doesn't mean that it's like, well, I guess no one's looking at me. So yeah. I'm going to stop progressing. Exactly. exactly. And the, unfortunately, like what's happening right now is you are starting to see major climate disasters happening in the midst of this, which is just, I mean, a nightmare. And, you know, unfortunately, Everyone keeps talking about these emissions reductions that we're seeing. And it's like, yeah, Yeah. we're going to have some temporary emissions reductions Mm -hmm. that are a blip on the map compared to how many oil and gas projects are getting rubber stamped and greenlit right and left every day right now. How much Mm -hmm. all of the existing operations are just completely ignoring any kind of emissions restrictions and like ripping methane up in the air like there's no tomorrow. It's like farting. (laughs) Fossil farts. They're fossil farts. Yeah. Like just massive... I mean, it's it's exactly what Naomi Klein talks about in Shock Doctrine, where like they mm-hmm. these companies like <laughs> these are in this is the thing again, the thing that drives me crazy about this, like, oh, don't be opportunistic thing. These companies have plans in place to to basically completely take advantage of any kind of disaster. I mean, they the, right. like they the, stay ready. They stay ready. Like they had these letters and these requests like ready to go on day one. And they sent them right mm-hmm. off and started executing that plan immediately. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, yeah. a, there's a big rush right now to pass a bunch of regulatory rollbacks and changes before July mm-hmm. because there's there are a couple of rules that will kick in because it's an election year about what can be passed and what Congress can and can't sit on and all that kind of stuff. So that's another part of the reason that you're seeing the Trump administration just full steam ahead on environmental rollbacks because they want to get those done before (laughs) before they run out of time. So this, again, I mean, like the reason that I started looking at uh, policy rollbacks and what the fossil fuel industry was trying to accomplish right now was that I saw really early on, like early March, Already, like these big right wing groups and think tanks were putting out messaging around like, oh, these the Democrats are trying to use this moment to push their progressive agenda. And I was like, what are they talking about? And then I remember that, like, they always accuse their opponents of doing what they're trying to do. So (laughs) I started looking at it and I was like, oh, my God, these guys are going wild right now. It's like Christmas for them. Hog wild. Yeah. 
Yeah, no. So yeah, that's why I think the work that you're doing over at Drilled with like the climate tracker where you're keeping Mm -hmm. track of all the like horrible shit that they're doing under the cover of COVID and the new season that you're doing, There Will Be Fraud, great, (laughs) great name, um, is really important right now. If you want to keep up with like what these folks are doing while we're not looking Go go check out drill the site and drill the podcast and then remember why you need to keep your eye on these. Like you can't take your eyes off of them for a second. Not one um, second. Yeah. 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 And I, I'm, I'm also glad to see that like this opportunism narrative. While I feel like it got a lot of play in the first couple of days within the climate community. I think people have finally learned that they have to start fighting back. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were two really good op-eds, um, one by Leah Stokes in the Boston Globe um, yeah. and one by Rihanna Gunn-Wright in the New York Times that was just like, they really, I think, slayed the dragon, or at least I hope they slayed the dragon. They did a really good job of telling the story of why we can't stop. Rihanna says, I think this pandemic is bad. We have another crisis coming. That's the title. So why is it opportunism when we try to design policy that would address more than one problem at a time, but sufficiency when businesses do the same? Leaders on both sides of the aisle have argued that folding policies to address climate and environmental injustice into coronavirus legislative packages would distract from efforts to provide immediate relief. But addressing climate change and environmental injustice will not diffuse efforts to address the virus and its economic fallout if we apply intersectional policies such as the Green New Deal. They are designed to address connected issues in a way that protects the most vulnerable while building a more just and sustainable economy. A climate-focused economic recovery, much less a coronavirus response that acknowledges the climate crisis, could require a new Congress and a new president, a tall order in America this divided. But maybe it is time to stop acting as though politics is a force of nature when we are facing actual and deadly forces of nature. It's past time to elect leaders who are fit to handle the crises we face, instead of hoping for problems small enough to fit the leaders we have. The Americans I know would like to survive, even if it means our country has to evolve, which many of us have been ready for long before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. That's, That's Rihanna right. Gunn Wright, everybody. Boom, Rihanna. <laughs> She's so good. If you didn't know about her, now you know. You need to be following her on any platform that you're on. And She's just so when good. Rihanna talks, you listen. Yeah. That's what that's those are the rules. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This piece was so good. I mean, it was hard to pick yeah. one excerpt because I feel like the whole thing was so great. Um, Look, I would have read the whole thing on a soapbox outside if we weren't social distancing. I know. I know. It's great. <laughs> it's great. And it's totally right. She's right. It's like every time yeah. these things happen, whatever. I mean, this happens in media, too, in more subtle ways. Like, somehow, the CEO of a company talking about a policy that impacts that company is more credible than an activist. Um, Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, look, they both have agendas. There's not, you know, it's like, yeah, everyone's trying to, like, everyone is trying to... um, push for the future that they want to see in this moment because we're at a standstill and a reset. And of course you're going to see people pushing for what they want to see next. And those two options are either continue on like capitalism on steroids or do something differently. You know, like when you, when you boil it down, that's it, you know? So 
Yeah. The other thing that we're seeing coming out right now is this whole humans are a virus thing. The real virus are humans and like nature is rebooting herself and nature is dealing with us as the disease that we are and all of this stuff. Which, like, I, you know. uh, I'm so fucking sick of that shit. Like, if you think that, you are a virus. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Deal with yourself. Human beings are not a virus because mm-hmm. human beings are human beings and human beings are part of nature. I mean, granted, viruses are part of nature, too. But, you know, what? if we're going to go with your little stupid ass frame. Let's, OK, there there you go. We can't like nature can't heal if we're sick because we're part of nature. Like, how do you not see where this is going? Also, there are clearer. There are better ways to reduce emissions that don't involve everybody fucking dying. Yeah. Like we've been proposing them forever. Now you want to get hype about climate change because it's a pandemic? Yeah. How lazy is that shit? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um I feel like, you know, we've been sort of dealing with this narrative ever since corona kind of came on the scenes and they're like, "Look, there's sharks back in the, you know, Mississippi River. Isn't nature great?" Like they're not supposed to be that's not a real picture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so I, people are just way too crunk about it. I feel like there is this sense of desperation to give up when it comes to climate. And yeah. that's just not that's not how this works. Yeah. You yeah. know, like you don't get to give up. I know that like that can look appealing and nihilism can look a lot easier than actually getting involved and wanting to solve the problems. But that's not what we're doing. You can't give up on yourself. I feel like it's beyond even like a personal giving up on yourself. It's like giving up on the whole ability of humanity to do anything differently. This is actually like a big part of my issue with this Michael Moore movie too, is that like they <sighs> they think they're being so smart by dismissing the like technocratic approach to climate change. Which, okay. Which I per, like I also disagree with. I don't think that like some new tech, like th- that it's just as simple as changing out one energy source for another. Um, but but then they come to this other conclusion, which is that the only way to deal with it is like population control, right. which to me just seems like the same kind of lazy, simplistic right. thinking, which completely eliminates the whole notion that like we could build a different social structure. We could behave differently as humans. We could rethink how our economy right. works. Like doing it, the com- work. It negates any kind of social change. Yeah. It's like, well, that's just as dumb of a like you know supposedly silver bullet solution is saying it it just requires some new technology to fix right um it kind of like it reminds me of all the times like you know you go to like a poetry reading or whatever and the person reading the poetry thinks they're being really deep but they're about as like deep as a snapple cap right (laughs) Right. (laughs) like their metaphors are like your skin was like Again, you're like that was it. That didn't. That didn't move me. That didn't move me at all. I know you thought you were doing uh, something. Not working. You're not. You're not doing anything. So yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 a major problem. So Brian Kahn wrote a great piece about this in Earther um, called "What the the Humans Are the Virus" meme gets so wrong. I'll just read a little bit from it. 
He says, we're as much a part of nature as the cougars roaming Boulder, Colorado apartment complexes. The real issue is that corporations and complicit governments have done everything in their power to break that bond with nature. The coronavirus shows that connection is still there. And more importantly, it shows that we have a lot of work to do to nurture it back to good health, or we really do risk losing everything. Those cheering the coronavirus dabble in a handful of ideologies. There's the eco-fascist idea of seeing humans as a disease that need to be cleansed. There's classic racism and classism since the we the virus has taken a toll on is not evenly distributed, with Black and brown communities seeing an outsized number of deaths. There are even shades of dyed-in-the-wood liberal ideas that nature somehow exists over there in a national park or something, walled off from noxious smog-choked cities. So, yeah, I I really appreciated this article um, because, you know, I think there's this sort of tendency in the climate community to like, oh, just ignore it, it'll go away. Um, with anything that's bad or any narrative that's like kind of environmentalist, but also like mad problematic um, and not call it out for the damage that it's doing. And it's important, frankly, for white men to call that shit out. And Brian is Brian is a white guy. So it's really important for him to like do that work and take that hit because, you know, when I do it, it's you're making everything about race, like all the Michael Moore Mm standboys in my mentions right now who can definitely kick rocks. Like y'all bitches. Dick. <laughs> Sorry. Um, here, no, it pisses me off. Like also, like read a fucking book, guys. Like read a fucking book while Look you kick the, the rocks history. and eat the <laughs> Yeah, eat a dick and read a book at the same time, gents. Because this is a long history. This argument has been made over and over again for decades, and it has always been with misogynistic eugenicist fucking racist overtones like deal with yourself know. you know <gasps> seriously why is so funny to i don't me know to if you can you concentrate on the reading like yeah i don't know if you can concentrate <laughs> on the reading while you're eating a dick but make an effort gents. you can do it you can do it i don't know why i'm it is so, so funny fucking annoyed by it it's just like evolve you fucking apes like jesus you know ah <sighs> You saying eat a dick is the funniest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Oh, God, my face hurts. Oh, shit. <laughs> okay, yeah. I heard it. I'm crying. Um, but yeah, like, lots, a, a few other people have written, like, really good pieces about this. In particular, um, yeah. Izzy Ramirez. Um, in Bitch Media wrote a piece called People Aren't Bad for the Climate Capitalism Is. Definitely go read that. Um, but I, my personal favorite is one that you published in Drilled News, and I'm going to let you take it from there. Yes. Yes, we got this great essay from Kate Marvel, who is a literal fucking rocket scientist. Yeah, no, yeah, no <laughs> she's, she's friends with aliens. She's... Yeah, 
She is a scientist at NASA Goddard Institute mm-hmm. and um, a longtime climate scientist and a like amazing writer. She's I think we've we've mentioned various other things that she has written yep. too. And she wrote this great piece called I Am a Mad Scientist, mm-hmm. which I love. I love the title. I love everything about mm-hmm. it. Um, where she she basically kind of comes out as being, you know, angry as a scientist, which is is funny because I feel like scientists have a lot of the same kind of rules that journalists have, which is like you're supposed to not be emotional about what you're, you know, reporting or the information that you're finding out and conveying to people. You're supposed to, you know, be totally objective and not have any opinions right. and all these kinds of things. And and Kate's like, yeah, I'm mad. Yeah. I'm really angry about yeah. this. Yeah. Right so here's a little bit from that. I've heard it a couple times already from a journalist, a family friend, a neighbor. You must be happy about all of this. The implication is that because I'm a climate scientist, I must be excited about this time of reduced economic activity and greenhouse emissions. The earth is healing, they say. Nature is returning. Why wouldn't I be glad about it? Friends, I am definitely not happy. I'm not even sad. What I am more than anything is angry. I'm angry at the very idea that there might be a silver lining in all this. There is not. Carbon dioxide is so long lived in the atmosphere that a small decrease in emissions will not register against the overwhelming increase since the start of the Industrial Revolution. All this suffering will not make the planet any cooler. If the air quality is better now, if fewer people die from breathing in pollution, this is not a welcome development so much as an indictment of the way things were before. But more than anything else, I'm angry at the implication that we are at fault. There is a bad but persistent narrative that climate change and pandemics are caused not by greenhouse gases and viruses, but by human nature. We are greedy for food, shelter, adventure, self-fulfillment, human contact, and, says this narrative, we must be punished for our sins. But the current situation, death, poverty, loneliness, is an ineffective blueprint for climate solutions. We were never going to be able to sacrifice our way out of climate change, especially not on the backs of the people who have historically done most of the sacrificing. There is an entrenched system that extracts CO2 from the ground and pumps it into the atmosphere, one that results not from inherent human badness, but from the choices of a few humans with power. Confronting that system will take work. We need to build things. Wind turbines, solar panels, public transportation, denser cities, fairer societies. We don't need purification. We don't need absolution. We need to get to work. Amen. Kate You know, this last line in particular. Yes. the, The work part, I honestly, I'm just like, God. Stop being so fucking lazy. Yeah. There is not, like, was there some, it reminds me of when um, you were talking about the hope narrative and you were like, did people ask Martin Luther King what gave him hope? I, like, I just, I don't, can you I look? find that footage. Like, is there any social justice movement that's been effective in any way at all that has been either short-lived, immediately successful, or fucking easy? Right. No. No. Like, uh, No. Yeah, I just, like, well, where is this expectation coming from? Honestly, I feel like it's lazy, rich white people yeah. who are like, but it's hard. Like, fucking get it together, folks. Like, yeah, it's hard. It's going to take some work. Like, why can't you just quit being a little bitch? Yeah, why can't I just plug in my car? <laughs> yes. 
seriously. No, but like this Kate piece was so good and you need to go read the entire thing. Um, You will thank us later. Trust me. Like she really just Mm -hmm. does such a great job at like, and it's kind of like people think that climate activists would celebrate this bit, even though like the huge toll, the huge toll of human suffering. Like I'm not into climate because I hate people, people. I am a fucking person. I don't like to see human beings suffering. That is the point. You know, I think that that is actually a very key and interesting difference between kind of the first wave of the environmental movement and the climate movement now. That the first wave of the environmental movement really was about like oceans and trees and rivers and whatever. Environment for environment's sake. Yeah. And I think that that's also why it was so off-putting for a lot of people. <laughs> right. Right. And it's also why I don't identify as an environmentalist. Yeah. Um, because I, I I feel like the climate movement brought the, the information that like, oh, we live here. Mm-hmm. We need this to live. Right. It's not about, you know, protecting polar bears for the sake of the polar bears, though. Don't get me wrong. I love a good polar bear. Yeah. Love a good fat polar bear. Yeah. in their habitat mm-hmm. don't really want to fuck with them no. you know what I mean um nope. so <laughs> yeah like understanding that we're part of an ecosystem and I'm not protecting the vaquita out of the goodness of my heart I'm yeah. protecting them because their survival is my survival yes yes so, this whole idea it's so weird because in this in it, like although the early environmental movement focused on nature it still did this thing of really um, kind of emphasizing the divide between humans and nature, which I feel like Mm -hmm. now it's like Mm -hmm. the the climate movement has a focus more on human survival, but has also actually integrated humans into nature more (laughs) in this weird way. Yeah. Right. I also, you know, for all the climate people who are feeling, you know, this type of marginalization right now of like, oh, don't bring climate into the COVID conversation. Like, I want you to really sit with how that feels and think about how that feels to people of color when we're told not to bring our issues Mm -hmm. into climate. Mm -hmm. When we're told not to bring prison reform into climate or police brutality into climate or, you know, dirty drinking water into climate or voting repression into climate. Because our humanity is our humanity and our humanity is interconnected. And right. all of those issues are a climate issue just as much as climate is a COVID issue and COVID is a climate issue. All of these things are interconnected to the point that they cannot, they are inextricable from yeah. one another. So understand that when you're thinking about people of color coming into the climate conversation and making the connections that needs to be made. Yes. Yes. Very good point. Yeah. spend an average of 90% of their time indoors, which is bad news because according to the EPA, indoor air could be two to five times more polluted than outdoor air. In some cases, it could be a hundred times more polluted. Data shows that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths around the world. I have a strange little problem in my neck of the woods, and that is that everybody likes to burn their garden trash and other trash too. Lots of trash burning going on in my neighborhood. Not great. 
Air Doctor has really, really helped. I just fire it up on days when I can tell everybody's lighting their trash fires and it keeps the household air clean. Air Doctor is the air purifier that has captured the attention of established media outlets like CNN, Money, ABC, and more. Air Doctor filters out dangerous contaminants and allergens like pollen, pet dander, dust mites, and mold so your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use the promo code DRILLED to get up to 39% off or up to $300 off, depending on the model. Lock this special offer in by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use the promo code DRILLED. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40, 40%. Go to drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Amy, mm -hmm. what was Whitney Houston's favorite type of coordination? What? <laughs> Hand Lordy Lord. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm reading a book about anti-gravity. It's impossible to put down. Oh, God. That's a science dad joke. <laughs> That's a science dad joke. <laughs> okay. 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 Um, you want a climate dad joke? Yes. Let's hear it. Two wind turbines are standing in a wind farm. One asks, what's your favorite time of music? The other says, I'm a big metal fan. Oh, God. Oh, Lord. Get it, get it, get it, get it, get it. Okay, so this whole thing about, you know, whether or not humans are a virus brings us neatly into <laughs> the climate, COVID, and kids conversation that's happening out there. So, yeah. you know, on top of the fact that, you know, 
we kind of had started this whole like climate and population thing even before the Michael Moore movie came about. Now we have the whole coronavirus thing. And I think a lot of people are really um, it's making a lot of people think about the kid question even more. And then there's a ton of Mm -hmm. I mean, I know you and I have friends in common that are pregnant right now. And I'm sure you have other friends, too. Like I have tons of friends who are pregnant right now. And I just feel for them. Oh, I don't have that many. I've just got the one. Oh, man, I have quite a few. Yeah. Including, like, a number of people where it's their first kid, which seems like a whole extra level. Like, it's just really, it's rough. So, um, anyway, there is this woman, Anika Brown, at the Boston Globe, who wrote about this. She's actually the editor, or one of the editors of the op-ed section, and she's pregnant right now. And so she wrote this essay, I'm pregnant during the coronavirus pandemic, and I'm terrified which I, I mean, it's mm-hmm. heart wrenching. Um, so, yeah. 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 Um, and then you actually wrote something for Anika um, in this same realm yeah. uh, called In a Shrinking World, What Will We Pass On to Our Children? This one really hit home for me too, because it's more about like, what kind of world are we giving to the kids that are here already, you know, I guess. And yeah. Like, I guess yeah. the kids that are coming too, but it's just, it is, it's really tough to, um, you know, like I had in the midst of this uh, shut in, I've spent a lot of time with my kids. And, um, <laughs> I bet you have. And, you know, like they, they're four and seven and the seven-year-old is going to turn eight soon. And, it, you know, is wondering, you know, how this is all going to impact his birthday. But beyond that, he's kind of like, you know, that both of them have been talking about what they want to do when they grow up. And it really gets to me. You know, I just think yeah. of like, God, is that job going to even exist when you're yeah. adult? I don't know. You know, yeah. like, and I mean, that was already happening with climate and it's only gotten worse with the mm-hmm. stuff because now it's like, oh, wow. Um, like this, this kind of destruction and reboot thing is happening even sooner than I thought. Mm-hmm. And, and we haven't even dealt with the climate piece yet. So I just yeah. really, yeah, it's. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So, yeah. Tell us about this essay that you wrote. Yeah. So Anika, um, Anika's piece also is just like great on its own. And she talks about yeah. in it about like before she, before deciding to get pregnant that she, um, was already concerned about climate change and then here comes COVID, but they had decided that there was right. going to be hope and, you know, all of that. So I, I highly recommend reading her piece. Um, and I also kind of feel bad for having her edit mine. Um, so my... Because <laughs> she's like, thanks, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. To be fair, though, I, I wrote this essay back in February. Um, I wrote this piece like, actually shortly after uh, recording the... Um, live show that we did in Amherst, Massachusetts, because, um, you know, as well, the essay is about a lot of things, but it's also about my nephew. It's largely about my nephew. And one of my themes is every time I go to a new place, I go to a bookstore and I buy him a book. Um, And I was thinking about, and there are always books about animals. Um, And I was thinking, what new animal should I buy him a book about? Because I want to have a diversity. And, um, the thought ran across my mind of like, oh, a koala. And then I remembered the fires in Australia. I was like, oh, I can't, I can't buy this child in a, a book about koala bears. That would just be mean. And so then I just started thinking about it. Um, so I'll just, I'll read the excerpt and then I guess I'll talk a little bit more about it. 
Each time I've seen my nephew, he's passed some tremendous irreversible threshold. First he could laugh, then he could crawl, now he runs. During our video chat, I discovered that he's expanded his vocabulary between mama and dada to include happy and baby. I'm terrified that the next time I see him, however many weeks or months from now, he'll have graduated from babbling to talking, getting closer and closer to asking what's wrong. Before he knows what's wrong, though, I want him to know that someone fought for him. While his parents were providing his, for his every need, bathing him, feeding him, choosing his clothes and his schools, someone else was thinking about his future from a different vantage point, trying to shape the world he would grow up in. And not just any someone, someone whose hand he kicked into from the womb, someone who loved him before he was here, someone who spoke his name, who belonged to him, that someone fought with everything that she had to kiss it and make it better for him, specifically. Oh, I love it. So <laughs> Thank good. you. Um, so good. Yeah. So, so it came out of, like, wanting to go to the bookstore, buy him another book, but then realizing, like, not all the animals I want to buy him books about are going to be around. And is he going to resent me? for teaching him about all of these things that existed before he was born and then just being like, sorry, you were too late to the party. Uh, oops. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. it seems kind of not cool to do that. Um, and so also, you know, as much as I, as long as I've been known as a writer in the climate community, um, often I'll get these pitches from editors who are like, you know, we want you to write something for us. And almost always they're like, why don't you write about whether or not to have kids? And it's like, I can just sort of, even though we're on the phone, it almost feels like I can see them looking at my uterus and being like, you're going to dust that thing off? You're going to do it? You're going to do it? You're going to do it? And, <laughs> you know, especially, I, I know that that happens to women all the time, but in the climate There's, community, yeah. your decision to whether or not to have kids is sort of seen as this representation of whether or not you believe climate change is that bad. Yeah, um, it is. And totally. like, it's either like, if you say, I don't want to have kids, you're a doomer. If you say, I do want to have kids, you're an optimist. And either way, you, it comes with judgment. Either way, you lose. There's no way mm -hmm. of winning that. And also, like, I don't believe, and when I talked about this in the essay, I don't believe that having children is the degree to which you can care about children. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think you have to have children of your own to care about children and to be a positive force for children. And like, mm -hmm. I firmly believe that we need people in this world who care about children, who love children and don't have them. Um, and I don't know whether or not I'm going to have them. Yeah. I mean, that is like the absolute key to, so like, um, you know, I've been covering climate for a very long time, but in the midst of that, I have also written a fair bit on gender and particularly mm -hmm. motherhood. And I wrote a book about the history mm -hmm. of how ideas about motherhood came about in the U.S. And, uh, and like one of the big sort of solutions that I suggest is exactly this, that like it cannot be a nuclear family, every family for themselves solution any more than it can be an every person for themselves solution to any other societal problem. You know what I mean? It's like, right. that doesn't work. That's the, that's the fundamental flaw of, in my view, the American approach to things is like, right. 
Um, it's every every person for themselves. So yeah, we absolutely right. need, you know, communities looking out for each other. And right. Aunts, lots of aunts and uncles. We need them. Yeah. yeah. And even self-appointed aunts and uncles, right? Like yes. I I talk a lot in the story also about um my great uncles who um, you know, died when I was very young, but I also had a lot of great aunts and uncles who lived until, you know, I was much older. I have one still alive today and they mean a lot to me. Um and a lot of their children who are, you know, technically my cousins for all intents and purposes, the ways that they function in my life are my aunts and uncles. And you can't right. tell me otherwise. Um, yeah. And they they loved me and they helped to raise me. And they were like big influences in my life. And I loved them dearly. And that is part of the role that I want to play in my nephew's life. Um, but also, like, I've criticized this, like, we need to do climate change for our children narrative a lot on Twitter and I get people pushing back being like, you only say that because you don't have children, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, I don't need to have children to care about children. I really yeah. don't. Of course not. Yeah. And I also, like, do you not remember being a child? Were there only adults in your, <laughs> the only adults who cared about your life were the ones who, who sired you? Like, that feels yeah. like a very empty childhood. So, like, if I see a child in distress, in New York mm-hmm. City, and I've seen it, like a child that got lost or something, I will stop mm-hmm. everything to try to help that child. And I don't even know that kid. But like, that's yeah. what you do as a society. That's what you're supposed right. to do. So this idea right. that like, you need to have children to care about children, that needs to go. Ab- that, that absolutely needs to go, needs to go away with the coronavirus. Yeah. And I also feel like it, that's what scares me so much about the coronavirus, because we're being pushed very aggressively to retreat into our nuclear families yeah totally and like i worry about mm -hmm. and we're totally seeing the limits of that model you know Mm -hmm. um like i don't know a single working parent right now that isn't tearing their hair out you know Mm -hmm. like it's not it's not oh my gosh Um, yeah and like yeah yeah. i just think yeah it's a broken model and and also like i just i think people don't know that like the entire nuclear family model is like you know it came about in a context and a time that has no relevance to the lives that we live today (laughs) right so (laughs) yeah it just actually in history yeah (laughs) i actually this reminds me of a quote that's in your essay the case for climate rage and I don't actually know who said it because I think it's unattributed to it, unattributed to it, but it says, I barely know your kids and I feel like I would jump in front of a bush to stop this shit. Yes. Yes. And that was Sarah Miller who said that. That was Sarah me, Miller. Actually. Yeah. 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 She was just like, what? Like, and that was about climate change. Like, mm-hmm. she was just like, I just, it's like, I, I, she's like, I can't even let myself think that much about like, you know, um, what kind of a life the kids I know are going to have in the future because mm-hmm. it upsets me so much. And I don't understand why people, you know, feel like they need to be biologically attached to a child to feel that way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I think we have to fight for that instinct, especially in this moment now of social distancing. You have to fight yes. to cultivate and maintain that instinct to protect one another and mm-hmm. to face danger for one another. It's Especially and to give a shit for about children. One yes, yeah. exactly. Especially for yeah. children. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, and I've, totally. I've tried to play that role for like the climate kids who are coming up. Like I've had Jamie Margolin stay with yeah, me. I've like them. tried to bond with them yeah. and like be there for them because what they're going through is extremely, extremely traumatic. And they're like traveling yeah. all over, trying to like make a difference. And they, their parents can only do so much for them. You know, like mm-hmm. their parents can't keep an eye on them all all the time. Like they need people to be able to reach out to and to trust because this world is not always kind. So they need like safe people in their lives who are not their parents um, right. and who they can talk to about things they wouldn't feel comfortable talking to their parents about. So, yes, anyway, totally, totally. Yeah, I, yeah. I could have like renamed this essay The Case for Aunties. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> But yeah, <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. 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 Agreed. Um, yeah. And also like y'all need a break. Poor parents right now. Yes, totally. Yeah. So at, at the same time that there's all these parallels with climate and Corona, there's also like the climate story is important for its own sake. Um, We don't have to tie everything about climate to Corona. Climate was the story of our our lifetime before Corona, and it still is now. I I hate Mm -hmm. to put it in those terms because, I mean, Corona is definitely a very severe crisis right now. Um, But that didn't make the climate crisis any less severe. It really didn't. And it didn't make it any any less long-term. So... There's a piece uh, in the Columbia Journalism Review called The Story of Our Time, and I just wanted to read uh, the first excerpt from it, or the first paragraph from it. Tell says, I am convinced that journalism's failure to properly report the climate story will be recorded as one of its greatest humiliations. Since 1988, when James Hansen, a scientist at NASA, sat before Congress and warned the United States of the effects of a warming planet, news organizations have dithered and delayed and put off critical reporting on what's happening to the Earth. They have allowed themselves to be spun by oil industry PR campaigns, convinced themselves that the science is too complicated and contested, it's not, and rested on the idea that the subject is too abstract and depressing for their audiences to handle. Again, false. The result has been a massive media fail. In 2012, researchers at Media Matters found that U.S. news organizations gave 40 times more coverage to the Kardashians than to rising sea levels. During the 2016 campaign, reporters neglected to ask a single climate question in the three presidential debates. In 2018, broadcast news outlets gave more airtime to the royal baby than to the warming earth. Ugh, it kills me. It kills me. I didn't, I didn't even know they had a royal baby. I know. I'm going to be honest. Speak, talk about breeders, man. Those two. Have, <laughs> I think they have like. Ain't nobody talking about them. It's population control. Yeah, that, that just kills me that like the Kardashians and the royal baby are getting poor coverage. Oh. Um, yeah, seriously. So yeah. for I mean, you, they, Amy, yeah. as the long term climate journalist on the ski, like, how does this sound to you how does this feel to you yeah I mean I think that like I mean yes there's been a a long running problem with coverage and I think that actually the the broadcast coverage has been particularly problematic um 
And I, I mean, I do think that, and I think Kyle talks about this in this story, that the print side has gotten much better. Mm-hmm. The radio and audio side has gotten much better. The broadcast side remains a big friggin' problem. I mean, they're still doing, you still see examples of like really old school false equivalence type stuff where they're like, yeah. well, we better have a climate denier on to talk about how, right. why they're skeptical. You know, like they right. still do that shit. And it's like, yeah. you know, I mean, newspapers stopped doing that 10 years ago. So mm-hmm. I, I feel like um, for whatever Wasn't reason, there... the broadcast side is yeah. way behind. Yeah. Wasn't there a thing like I, I, I don't remember exactly when it was, but Chuck Todd was like, I'm going to do an episode of Meet the Press where we're going to talk about climate and we're not going to have um, both sides. And that was like revolutionary. He just did that for the first time, the first time in 2019. Right. I know it was last year. I think it was late last year, too. So it was like... It was. because, And the reason that he did that was that he had the same roundtable in 2018, and he invited people on from known, like, dark money think tanks to give the sort of... Uh, you know, actually, it's cold outside kind of take on climate. And he got so much public shit for it that he had this roundtable in 2019 where he did not do that. Finally. So that's a good that's a, also a, a good case study of the fact that like public shaming does work sometimes. Um, but 2019, come on. I looked it up and it was January 2019. Okay, so it was early 2019. Yeah. But he did, he got yeah. very, very. It was like criticized. a thing. Yeah. It was a big yeah. thing. Everybody was like, yeah. oh, which I guess that's good because he got so much criticized, like criticism for doing it the other way that when he did it right, he did get a lot of applause for that. But honestly, it's like, that's what you should have been doing for the, at least the last five, six years. I can't believe it took you until 2019 to do that, you know? Um, right. And it took a whole like mounted campaign, mm-hmm. whereas like it ain't hard, sweetie. But you it's know not what? Hard. I'm sorry, but Meet the Press has an enormous amount of fossil fuel advertising. The American Petroleum yeah, Institute advertises all over that show. And the reason that they particularly advertise in that show is that a lot of the, uh, you know, politicians and their staff watch that show religiously. So yeah, they do. It's they do. uh, Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's seen as some sort of like Holy Grail. Yeah, it's weird. Chuck Todd. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, but anyway, it is good. There is, you know, I, I agree that it's been problematic for a long time. I do feel like there has been some significant change in the last couple of years. And actually, I feel like the Covering Climate Now collaborative has been a big driver of that change in the last year. They've gotten all kinds of Yeah, large... tell us what that is. So it's kind of a, a collaborative group of outlets um, ranging from tiny, like Drilled is a, a partner in that group, but they also have CNN and... Uh, the Guardian and lots of of pretty big uh, national and, and international outlets, and they um, will coordinate a few times a year to share content back and forth. Um, you know, anytime one outlet has like a big project, like we open sourced our uh, reporting for the climate policy tracker, for example, and lots of of places are using. 
Um, some are using like the whole thing, but some are just using it for ideas, for stories, which is great. That's that's what we want. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. He talks a lot about like plans for that collaborative in the piece. So like highly recommend reading the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. Um, to get into the, to like some of what they're learning, what they're trying to like change about it all. So, mm-hmm. you know, what, what I, what I do like about this is Columbia Journalism Review is not only like lending their platform to more climate journalism, they're also trying to figure out how to fix the field. Yeah. Um, which is, which is awesome. Okay, so then the other, I mean, there there were actually quite a few. I have to say, I'm I'm very pleased to see that in April, and it might be because of Earth Day, but whatever, we'll take it. Mm-hmm. Um, there were many more stories that were just pure climate stories that did not attach it to coronavirus at all. Um, we did a story mm-hmm. by Maddie Stone on the sort of technology and climate thing. She looked at one company in particular and used that as sort of a an on-ramp into this discussion of like how responsible tech companies should be for what other companies do with their products. So like if you're, she looked at Autodesk, which is like they provide a software, it's a design software for products and buildings, like most architects and construction firms use their software, but they also are the software that's used by oil and gas companies to plot out uh, pipelines and like you oh, know right. they they use it to make mining equipment um all kinds of things so we yeah so she, yeah. yeah so she ta- she looked at you know okay um if your software is being used to like design pipelines or design mining equipment or whatever like what is your responsibility there especially if like in Autodesk case they have made sustainability a really big part of their brand and so, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, at, at what point does that just become greenwashing if, like, yeah, okay, right. a few architects use your software to create green buildings, but, like, all the oil and gas companies also use it to create pipelines, uh, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so it was interesting because she looked at a lot of the, like, a lot of the, the like, corporate sustainability reporting is just, like, kind of bullshit. It's, like, they really get to pick and choose what emissions they report and don't report. And it's like, you know, when Autodesk has a corporate partner that's really big in the environmental space, they talk about it a lot. But when they have a partner that's one of the largest fossil fuel companies in the world, they don't, that doesn't show up in their sustainability report at all. So, right, you know, um, yeah. Right. So, yeah. Right. Um, Which we, like, I felt strongly about getting a story out on Earth Day that was just about, you know, climate and environmental issues and mm-hmm. not about career. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. 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 And Maddie is definitely, definitely one of the smartest people I know when it comes yes. to tech and climate. Yes. Um, and she was on a previous episode that is like one of my favorite episodes that we've ever done, yeah. um, where she like really digs into the weeds of it. So yep. if you're not following her, if you haven't listened to that episode, mm-hmm. go and fix that. Yeah, she's great. She's really great. She's amazing. And yeah. I think that that more and more, that's really an area that needs to be looked at, not just um, technology companies, but like there are a lot of enablers of the fossil fuel industry that, you know, have been kind of ignored in, in various pushes for accountability. And I think it's an important conversation to have. I'm not saying that like, you know, um, Microsoft should be like canceled for supplying Excel to 
Exxon, <laughs> you know? But like it's an interesting That's the thing about these tech giants. Yeah. It's a, you can't cancel the bitches. That's true. But I think it's like a good conversation to have. Like who's um who's enabling either their um fossil fuel production or you know denial campaigns like there's all the PR firms that have done work for them there's all all kinds of law firms that have made i mean probably cl- like second only to the oil companies themselves the law firms defending them have made a fucking fortune for decades <laughs> you know so right. um yeah i don't know yeah it's good to like widen yeah. that lens i think um, another one, again, in Rolling Stone is from Jeff Goodall. Killing it. They're killing They're so it. so good. Yeah. Um, Jeff Goodall writes great stuff for them all the time. And this one is called mm-hmm. Rising Tides, Troubled Waters, the Future of Our Ocean. And he looks at this issue of, you know, in the, in like kind of the early days of climate science, people were a little bit optimistic about the ocean. You know, they were like, the ocean is such a great carbon sink. And and they they started to realize that the ocean was absorbing um, emissions, but they didn't necessarily realize that it was going to have the same impact eventually in the ocean that it has in the atmosphere, which is warming. Uh, and Oh, I feel like that was actually pretty recent. That they realized that. Like, I feel like that, that tide, yeah, that the ocean was in trouble, I feel like that was actually like t- within the past five years. Yeah, that people have been like, oh, wait, actually, it can absorb an endless amount of CO2. <laughs> you know? It's like, exactly. yeah, no shit, guys. Um, at a certain point, like, you know, it, it can't, it can't just keep absorbing that shit. So, anyway... Um, for a while now, like scientists have been saying this is a big problem. And it's the thing with the the ocean is that I, it's really kind of in the last few years hit this tipping point that we talk about with atmospheric carbon um, that we haven't quite hit yet, but it's coming. And that is like that, you know, you're just starting to see the, this like domino effect of crazy impacts that are all um, happening at once and are really drastically changing the ocean and the various ecosystems that live there. So, um, you know, there's like the whole marine food web is changing. You're seeing this massive coral bleaching that's really depressing and... Yeah. (laughs) And scary. scary. Like, we need coral reefs to survive. Yeah, yeah. So I'll read a little bit from this piece that uh, Jeff wrote, which is like really comprehensive about this whole issue. So if if you're wanting mm-hmm. to learn more about it, it's a good place to go. So he writes, but scientists know enough to know that the ocean is in trouble, largely because of overfishing. 90% of the large fish that were here in the 1950s are now gone. One metric ton of plastic enters the ocean every four seconds. At this rate, there will be more plastic than fish in the ocean by 2050. But the biggest problem, I mean, that is just staggering. That is a staggering number. But the biggest problem, thanks largely to our insatiable appetite for fossil fuels, is that the ocean is heating up fast. The past five years have been the five warmest ever measured in the ocean, with 2019 the hottest ever. According to one study, the amount Mm -hmm. of heat being added to the ocean is equivalent to every person on the planet running 100 microwave ovens all day and night. That is really troubling to think about. (laughs) Until now, the ocean has been the hero of the climate crisis. About 90% of the additional heat we've trapped from burning fossil fuels has been absorbed by it. 
Without the ocean, the atmosphere would be a lot hotter than it already is, says Ken Caldera, a climate scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science in Palo Alto. But the heat the ocean absorbed has not magically vanished. It's just stored in the depths and radiated out later. By absorbing and slowly releasing heat, the ocean reduces the volatility of our climate, cushioning the highs and lows as temperatures change from day to night, winter to summer. It also means the heat will continue to seep out for centuries to come, slowing any human efforts to cool the planet. It's not good. And But, Amy, <laughs> if we bring that up now, it's opportunistic. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is it's like, I don't know. I just, I feel like we're wasting so much really critical time to act on these things. And, you know... There's a certain amount of terrible impacts that are already baked in that are going to happen because nothing, nothing, you know, we didn't reverse it soon enough um, or it wasn't reversed soon enough. But the like, I just feel like every minute that we waste now is just leading towards more and more intense impacts that could be avoided. So I just. Right. Yeah, it's. It's disheartening. Harm reduction harm is reduction. a real thing. Exactly. Exactly. It's all about the harm reduction. Yes. Why would you not want to reduce harm? Do you know what's yourself? really crazy is that um, there was a memo that was leaked like a couple weeks ago from the um, like the Canadian Oil Producers Association. So like the Canadian version of the API where they sent a, a wish list to the Canadian government and whatever. And they actually used the language of harm reduction, but about fossil fuel profits. <laughs> what the fuck? How? <laughs> you have to use the precautionary principle here and like act now to prevent us from having massive economic losses in the next few years. And I was just like, wow, that is... Just saying that part out loud, are you? Holy shit, son. Um, yeah, fuck them. Mm -hmm. Fuck them hard. Two guys walk into a bar. The third one ducks. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Fun fact that a lot of people don't know about Amy is that Amy has a lot of animals. I she do. actually has a very fat cat. Mm-hmm. So, Amy, what's a cat's favorite color? I don't know. What? Purple. <laughs> <laughs> That's really an audio one, too. I feel like you wouldn't get that. If you it is. It. it is. It's good for this. <laughs> and Amy also has two dogs. Mm-hmm, I do. So, she's like, she keeps the shit under wraps. It's really weird. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway. Did you know that when Scooby-Doo went to school, he excelled at three R's? Ristery, Remistry, and Reography. Are, are taking something of a break though hopefully we we hope that you'll come with us on our little hiatus we want to talk a little bit about how to keep pushing for climate action even during these times where we're being like 
you know, hit on all cylinders yes. and and gaslit out of thinking that climate is the thing that we should be talking about. Right. How do we keep advancing climate action? Yeah. Um, we don't really know how, but we know that we have to. Right. So I think that that kind of comes down to doing it however you are already, like, creatively inclined to do it. Right. Um. Right now, we can't have our large marches and demonstrations because we can't be near each other, and that is painful. Um, but I have faith in the climate movement as a creative force, um, as an innovative force, and I believe that there are ways to keep pushing, and I, I have faith in us to find those ways. Um, but not if we give in to the fact, give in to this narrative that we're being opportunistic if we do so. Yes. Yeah, totally, totally. So um, one of your pieces that you mentioned writing a f- like several months ago that just came out recently is this one in Wired about kind of answering mm-hmm. this question that I think anyone who works on climate gets all the time, which is like, you know, what can I do uh, how can I make a difference? What should I be doing? All of those things. And Mary basically gives the definitive answer in this essay. <laughs> we can't tackle climate change without you. It came out in Wired. And I'm going to make you read this excerpt from it. Okay. So we can't tackle climate change without you. The print version title is Here's Where You Come In. Oh, which I actually like better. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah um, they did it different. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. For one thing, you don't have to do it all alone. In fact, you can't. Because we're talking climate commitment and not a single climate action, that means you don't have to worry about nailing it. This is a practice which does away with the need for perfection. The fact that every fraction of a degree of warming, Celsius or Fahrenheit, matters means that you're never too late or too small to help. The right time to start your climate commitment is always right now. But the question remains, what can I do? Well, now that you understand that the question is complicated, the answer actually emerges as quite simple. Do what you're good at and do your best. Yes. So the origin story of this essay is I I think like, so in 2018, I wrote a piece in Vox called... um, actually don't remember what the final title was, but it was about climate grief. And I think like some versions of it is like, here's how to deal with the grief around climate or whatever. Um, And in it, I talked about my journey through climate grief and coming around through into climate anger Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh, basically being like the oil and gas industry is gaslighting you and fuck them. And then I wrote a piece in Vox that was like a follow up to that because so many people were like, well, you're saying we don't have any agency. And I was like, girl, I don't know how you got that. But anyway, I wrote a piece in Vox last year that was called um, I Work in the Environmental Movement. I don't care if you recycle. And I remember the title of that essay because I've gotten a lot of people arguing with the headline. And which is the only part of the essay that I did not write Mm -hmm. as opposed Mm -hmm. to the actual essay that I wrote. Mm -hmm. I did. I never at any point said, I don't care if you recycle. I do care if you recycle. I care deeply because that is what signals to me that you give a fuck. And I desperately need you to give a fuck. Mm -hmm. So anyway, 
this is the follow-up to that essay, which um, that essay sort of begged the question of like, well, I want to get involved in climate and I understand that it's beyond, um, you know, I've, I've gone vegan, I've done the things, I've, I've recycled, I've done whatever. Now what do I do? And so what I tried to do with this essay was like, how do you, like, when you tell me that, what I hear is I'm ready to become a climate person. I'm ready to incorporate climate into everything that I'm doing as a human being. Like, I want to be one of y'all. And so how do you do that? Well, the answer to that is I don't know how to tell you how to do that because nobody told me to write essays. I'm pretty sure nobody told Amy to start a podcast. Nope. Amy, did anybody tell you to start a podcast? No, exactly. in fact, everyone told um, me not to. <laughs> exactly. Everyone told me not to write essays. Everyone told me not to join Twitter. I'm sure people told Greta that her strike was stupid. Yep. I'm pretty sure people told Jamie and Nadia not to start Zero Hour. Like, your climate commitment is just as individual to you as a career path. Yeah. Um, so what I was trying to do with this essay was like lay out the framework as opposed to like telling you how to cut your footprint or telling you to do like one off things that will ultimately like they might be satisfying in the moment, but they're not going to be satisfying in the long term. So if I tell you to go to a sunrise movement or go to, you know, a climate strike or vote for the right climate person, like once you've done the thing, you've done the thing and that's it. And that's unfulfilling. So with mm -hmm. climate commitment, you're figuring out how to how to mold climate to you or mold your climate action to you and make it more sustainable because climate action needs to be sustainable. And for it to be sustainable, it needs to become a commitment and not just like a one time action. Right. Right. I love this because I like, well, A, I get asked this a lot and I'm always kind of like, I don't know, you know, like, what do you do? Yeah. What do you do in the rest of your life? Yeah. You know, so yeah, now I can just yeah. like, read this. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, you know, a better question to ask would be like, how did you find your place mm -hmm. in the climate movement as opposed to what do I do person who doesn't know me at all? Right. You know what I mean? Because right. like I get asked this by people who like, I don't even know your name. Right. I don't know anything about you. So I don't know where your talents are. I don't know where your passions are. So like, right. and and the opening story for this essay was about this like, artist salon that I was at and they were like, okay, well, we need to cut emissions by X number by X date. How do we do that? And it's like, right. maybe you're not an engineer. Maybe you're an artist and maybe your role is to recruit people as opposed to being the one at the switch yourself. Right. Right. You know, like everybody doesn't need to do everything because no one is in this alone. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So again, yeah. um, the other the other person who's kind of written effectively on this recently is Jeff <laughs> Jeff Goodell at Rolling Stone. Jeff Goodell, <laughs> yeah, he has this yeah. piece called "Good Work Is Good Work." What can I say? I like we hate we hate citing white guys over and over again, but Jeff's doing the work, He's and so it. you know what? Yeah. You know, I I can't hate. Mm -hmm. I can't hate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, he happened to interview Mary for this one, so we can't not like it. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. I mean, he actually did go out of his way to make sure that he included uh, quotes and interviews and perspectives that were different than his. Yeah. So, you know, 
shout out to Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. And so his piece is called Zero Hour. There's no stopping climate change, but how bad it gets is still up to us, which I do think is really important to hammer on. Like, I I don't like to um, give people false hope and, you know, mm-hmm. play into this idea that, like, you know, there's some certain number of steps we can take to avoid climate impacts altogether. But this point that, like, mm-hmm. how bad it gets is still up to us is really, really important for people to understand. Um, and he he also qu- uh, quotes Kate Marvel in this story. So I'm going to read a little bit from it here. He says, But no matter how fast we act, we are not going to fix the climate like a doctor fixes a broken leg. The Earth's climate is not Mm -hmm. a binary system or a switch that you can toggle on and off, says Kate Marvel, a climate scientist at NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies in New York. Even if we stopped burning fossil fuels tomorrow and stabilized the Earth's temperature where it is today, we would still face several feet of sea level rise in the coming century, as well as collapsing coral reefs and changing rainfall patterns. The notion that we can avoid climate change is unequivocally false, says Marvel. We're at one degree of warming now, and we're already seeing the impacts of climate change very clearly with wildfires, flooding, and other extreme weather events. But it's also true that our actions over the next decade very much matter. We have already crossed one of the most important thresholds of the climate crisis. We've gone from, is it happening, to what are we going to do about it? In this new world, there are no solutions. Only better and worse choices about where we will live, how we will live, who and what will survive, and who and what will be lost. Above all, it's a world that will be defined by how hard we are willing to fight for our future. We might be living in a horror movie right now, but we are the ones writing the script, says writer Mary Anais Hegler. Woo! That's me. That's me. And we're the ones who will decide how this movie will end. But the lesson of this is not that we're fucked, but that we have to fight harder for what is left. Too late-ism only plays into the hands of big oil and big coal and all the inactivists who want to drag out the transition to clean energy as long as possible. Too late-ism also misses the big important truth that buried deep in the politics and emotion of the climate crisis, you can see the birth of something new emerging. The climate crisis isn't an event or an issue, says futurist Alex Steffen, author of Snap Forward, an upcoming book about climate strategy for the real world. It's an era and it's just beginning. Like many people on the front lines of the climate fight, Hegler bristles at the lazy questions about what gives her hope. I think hope is really precious, and the most precious thing about it is that you have to earn it, she tells me. So usually when people are asking me what gives me hope, what they really mean is give me hope, and I can't do that for you. No one can do that for you. You have to go out and make your own hope, and so that means I hope you get involved. The type of hope I have is that I hope you get off your ass. (laughs) Get off your ass. I hope you get your shit together. You know, like what I was thinking of there was like, you know, the um, outcast video for for Hey Ya. Mm-hmm. You remember this? And yeah, like, totally. Big yeah. boy is like playing the part of Andre's manager. And like Andre is like all the different members of this band. And he's like, he's showing him the money. He's like, look, 
This right here, this is hope money. I hope you get shit together. <laughs> it's like, that is how I feel about, about climate. When people are like, what gives you hope? I Look, I, I hope that you fucking join me. I hope you get shit together. Exactly. You're like, exactly. um, Cedric yeah. the Entertainer, who's like, uh, I don't know if white people know who he is. Yeah. He's a very famous what, black comedian. Yeah. yeah, And he talks about, like, one of his most famous jokes is about the wish factor. Uh-huh. Where he talks about, like, white people wish about things where where no 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 black people white people hope things and black people wish them <laughs> like black people white people hope things don't go wrong whereas black people wish the motherfucker would (laughs) (laughs) hope doesn't mean shit to us like so this whole like let's build a hopeful movement blah 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 like to black people that feels like you got shit under control right right so anyway anyway thank you for thank you to jeff for allowing me to to say that shit to a mostly i love it i love it i hope you get your shit not only did he use that quote but he like used it as the kicker of the whole piece so it's like the mic drop of the whole thing (laughs) which is so good (laughs) right like and and he interviewed a lot of really great people Mm -hmm. for this piece so Mm -hmm. you know i thought and and i i love that he like he frames it when he first opens talking about like, look, I understand that COVID is a really big deal. And when someone you care about is sick, um, you know, it can be hard to focus on anything else, but climate is not going away. Um, and so we need to talk about it for its sake. And I want to be clear that like when climate people are pushing this out there, we're not denying the severity of the, of the COVID crisis. We look at the COVID crisis and we see all the pandemics that could come. Should we do nothing about about climate? We see all the pandemics that happen when like the ecosystems start to break down. That is a that is a recipe for disaster on a level that really no one wants to comprehend. So anyway, I I'm really glad to Rolling Stone for not killing the story. I'm really glad for Jeff not to write it anyway because i know he was he interviewed me for this in january so i think it's like sort of sat around for a little while now and whatever y'all are doing at rolling stone keep doing it because yeah y'all are killing the game right now final michael moore rant yeah yeah okay so i will say that Final michael moore rant fuck him Seriously, so bad. The monotone is terrible. There's, it's like all white guys. A lot of them are not even named. They're just like automatic experts somehow. Um, Exactly. The most of the reporting happened a decade ago or more, and then half of it's wrong. Uh, Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. um, We know burning trees is bad, dude. Like, where the fuck have you been? And if your solution is going to be like, hey, guys, have you considered giving up? Yeah, we fucking considered it, dude. Yes. We fucking considered it. You're not like shining the light on anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Leah Stokes wrote a great piece in Vox, kind of debunking a bunch Mm -hmm. of things in the movie. I also had her on drilled to talk about all of the ways that the movie gets renewable energy stuff wrong. So that came out this week and you can hear a little snippet of the narrator's terrible monotone in there because I made fun of it. Oh Um, my gosh, that terrible monotone. Oh my God. I even do a little impression of it. So go listen to that. Um, And then 
I also wrote a piece on Drilled News about all the things mm-hmm. that this movie gets wrong, too. So there's, there's, oh, actually, I have to give a shout out to Brian Kahn's review in Earth or two. I thought he did a great job of um, kind of, I don't know, being like, uh, yeah, like there are definitely like critiques that we can talk about of renewable energy and environmental groups and all that. But like, this is not it, guys. Um, right. So, <laughs> Miss yeah. the miss the point. You like get, the point went clean it. over their heads. Yeah. 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 So, anyway. so and also there's just like a lot of fucking lies in there. So read Leah's yeah. piece, listen to Amy's podcast, like yeah. don't listen to Michael Moore. And people don't drink bleach. Don't drink bleach. These are things like I shouldn't have to say. Don't drink bleach. Don't watch the Michael Moore movie. You'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Or if you watch it, don't, like, take that shit with a mountain of salt. Yes. Okay? And, like, if you hear friends being like, well, Michael Moore and Jeff Gibbs said whatever, uh, you need to nip that shit in the bud. Mm -hmm. Don't let that misinformation take hold. We've got enough misinformation out there. Yes. Okay, so... That brings us to our standout pieces, which I'm very excited about. We kind of chose too. Yeah. We um we kind of chose pieces this time that are like uh I don't know, kind of like our standby pieces that we go back to um more than once. Um yeah. Yeah. So do you want to talk about yours first, Mary? I think like it's a good way to set it off. Yeah, it's more like standby pieces than standout pieces this time to mm-hmm. be to be mm-hmm. like that was mm-hmm. a great way to frame it. Um, this is a, a piece that I go back to all the time when I'm tempted to give up, um, which is a, a very tempting sort of like siren song. I think that comes up a lot in in climate. We talked about it a little bit earlier, of just like uh, you know this is too hard. Right. Um, and this is a piece that I, I go back to, you know, when I start to hear that siren song. It's called What's It Going to Take? It's by Ijeoma Oluo. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Mm-hmm. Um, and she just published it on Medium. And it was written right after um, Brian Kavanaugh got re- got confirmed for the Supreme mm-hmm. Court. But it is relevant all the time. Um, so I'm just going to, it was hard to find one excerpt from it. So I'm going to read it for a little while and I'm not going to apologize for that. <laughs> so <laughs> she says, our history books, if we're lucky enough to have them, will remember the millions of words our major newspapers and magazines spent dedicated to humanizing neo-Nazis and white supremacists, to arguing for reaching out to those who want to see the most vulnerable of us dead. Our history books, if we're lucky enough to have them, will have our children and grandchildren, if we're lucky enough to have them, looking at us with confusion and shame. And all of this is the best case scenario. All of this is if we are lucky, lucky enough to still have an independent press, lucky enough to still have someone who remembers, lucky enough to have a future generation to limit what we've done. So are you ready now? Are you ready to no longer act like you don't hold the pen? like you aren't the one helping to write some of the darkest chapters of our history? Are you ready to end these chapters and fight for new ones, for better ones, chapter ones, chapters where you are not the worst villain of all, the bystander? God damn it, if you're reading this and think I'm being overdramatic, I need you to pay attention right fucking now. 
because the groundwork for the destruction of our entire democracy has already been laid and the work has already started. Our constitutional protections have been undermined. Our vote has been diminished. Our press marginalized and delegitimized. Our checks and balances have been removed. If you are not outraged, you are part of the problem. If you are not terrified, you are part of the problem. If you are not calling bigotry, hatred, and violence what it is, you are part of the problem. If you are not fighting back with everything you have, you are part of the problem. Mm, so good. Yeah. Well. Well, ma'am. Yes. <laughs> yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's so I good. don't even know. What, like, I don't even know how to comment on that. It's true. I know. I love this piece, too. It's and I've definitely like gone back to it since it came out too it's because it is it's a good reminder of like you you keep fighting because it's the right thing to do and if you don't then fuck you (laughs) right (laughs) you don't get to give up right right giving up is not an option right 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 yes so amy what's yours Mine is like not as fiery. It's extremely nerdy, but um, <laughs> but, but still, you know, we you go know, back to where tracks. we go back to. Listen, that tracks. Um, I, <laughs> 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 um, I go back to this piece in the New Yorker from it was 2015, which I can't even believe that because it feels like it just came out recently. But um, there was this piece by Catherine Schultz in the New Yorker called The Really Big One. And it's about how there is a like absolutely catastrophic earthquake earthquake headed for the Pacific Northwest that like everyone continues to just sort of ignore. <laughs> and the reason that I go back to it is that when I read it, it reminded me so much of climate change and how people um, view it. And now this was, you know, it came out five years ago. And at that time, I think there was quite a bit less awareness than there is now. But still, like, it felt like just, it just felt parallel to me to how um, how people kind of treat what we know is coming on climate. And then I also, um, I look to it as a good example of just how to write about science in an engaging way, especially in this case, she's talking about, like, geology and seismology, which are really hard to write about in a way that, like, people want to read it at all. <laughs> You know, so, um, so yeah, here, I'm going to read a little bit from it. So she writes, in fact, the science is robust. And one of the chief scientists behind it is Chris Goldfinger. Thanks to work done by him and his colleagues, we now know that the odds of the big Cascadia earthquake happening in the next 50 years are roughly one in three. The odds of the very big one are roughly one in 10. Even those numbers do not fully reflect the danger, or more to the point, how unprepared the the Pacific Northwest is to face it. The truly worrisome figures in this story are these. 30 years ago, no one knew that the Cascadia subduction zone had ever produced a major earthquake. 45 years ago, no one even knew it existed. In May of 1804, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, together with their Corps of Discovery, set off from St. Louis on America's first official cross-country expedition. Eighteen months later, they reached the Pacific Ocean and made camp near the present-day town of Astoria, Oregon. 
The United States was, at the time, 29 years old. Canada was not yet a country. The continent's far expanses were so unknown to its white explorers that Thomas Jefferson, who commissioned the journey, thought that the men would come across woolly mammoths. Native Americans had lived in the Northwest for millennia, but they had no written language, and the many things to which the arriving Europeans subjected them did not include seismological inquiries. The newcomers took the land they encountered at face value, and at face value, it was a find. Vast, cheap, temperate, fertile, and to all appearances, remarkably benign. A century and a half elapsed before anyone had any inkling that the Pacific Northwest was not a quiet place, but a place in a long period of quiet. It took another 50 years to uncover and interpret the region's seismic history. Geology, as even geologists will tell you, is not normally the sexiest of disciplines. It hunkers down with earthly stuff, while the glory accrues to the human and the cosmic to genetics, neuroscience, physics. But sooner or later, every field has its field day, and the discovery of the Cascadia subduction zone stands as one of the greatest scientific detective stories of our time. So it goes on. It's like, it's quite a long piece, but it's like, um, I don't know, it's just like a good story. And, um, and again, yeah, reminds me of like, like there's all these parts where she talks about how resistant people are there to like, you know, designing their homes in a different way and all these little things that you kind of don't think about, um, the ways in which like science or knowledge can shift how culture or society works. Um, that just remind me a lot of, of the climate situation too. So yeah. Yeah. We've got to start like looking for climate metaphors. Yeah. Um, you know, even where like the, the climate narrative isn't necessarily clear, like there can always be metaphors. There can always be things to learn from things that aren't explicitly about climate. Yeah. Um, and you know, the sooner we learn to do that, the sooner we're able to like learn and adapt. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. No, this is on brand as like hella nerdy though. I know. It's very on brand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you hear about the restaurant on the moon? No. <laughs> It has great food, but no atmosphere. Oh, Lord. Another science dad joke. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The past, the present, and the future walk into a bar. It was tense. (laughs) 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 There's a literary, like, English joke for you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Last one. This is my favorite. Amy, where does a mansplainer get his water? I don't know. Where? A well, actually. (laughs) (laughs) That was actually really good. (laughs) That was really good. (laughs) Shout out to to Laura uh, from Twitter who submitted that. I'm actually going to look up her name because she submitted a lot of them. And it was like, yeah, she's really good. (laughs) Her uh, her Twitter is tutus and tiny hats. Oh yeah, that's tutus in, as in the letter in tiny hats. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this was great. Thank you for indulging my dad jokes. Yes. (laughs) All right, we made it to the end of season one. 
Amy, at the risk of getting too mushy, I have loved working with you and I'm so glad and so honored that you asked me to do it. And I feel like we've gone from fangirls to work wives and it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's true. I know. I'm really proud of what we've done too. And I feel like we managed to wrestle with some hard questions together and with a whole bunch of really amazing guests. And of course, I loved working with you too. This has been super fun. And I'm excited yeah. that we're going to keep working together on, on, you know, this and and offshoots of this and all kinds of other stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I'm so excited to keep this going in season two and even in hiatus. Um, but I'm really glad we're taking a break, too. Oh, my God. I know. <laughs> Seriously. For real. Um, yes. But yeah. Definitely sign up for the newsletter. And stay tuned for bonus content. We'll put a link for um, the newsletter in our show notes and on our Twitter feed. So there are lots of places you can look for that. Absolutely. Um, Right. And we also want to give out a shout out to the other great climate podcasts in this space because it feels like it's finally starting to blow up. Um, And that's such welcome news to us because, you know what, there's so much room and with more people joining, it means that we don't have to be accountable for doing everything. Um, so first there's Drilled, there's the, uh, which does like narrative climate storytelling and investigative journalism is Amy's first podcast. Um, and it's really amazing. You should be listening to it. Then there's um, No Place Like Home, uh, where Anna Jane and Marianne hit, uh, focus on climate and spirituality and emotionality, um, which like who couldn't use some of that right now. Mm-hmm. Um, there's Heated by Emily Atkin, which is like a media a mini series on climate and COVID. Um, There's also in the Drill news feed. So if you subscribe to Drilled, you're subscribed to Heat It. Don't even need to do anything extra. Um, there's Our Warm Regards, uh, where you can hear about the latest science from actual scientists and experts. Um, and then there's Hot and Bothered, which just came back from like a super long hiatus, mm-hmm. um, where they talk about climate politics with real life walks. So go on over there and you can hear all about that. Yeah, there's so many good ones. It's great. Um, I would also add to that list the podcast Threshold, which is a great um, kind of... They also do narrative. It's I guess I would maybe describe it more as environment than climate, but they definitely get into some climate stuff. Their um, second season is all about the Arctic. So um, definitely check that out. It's great. And it's been great to see the space exploding in general. Um, so yeah, check those mm-hmm. guys out. Make sure you're still following us on Twitter. You can find us at yeah. Real Hot Take. I'm at Amy Westervelt and Mary is at Mary Hegler. Right. And you can still email us with your questions. It'll just take us a little while longer to get to them. Um, but the inbox is still open at hot takes at criticalfrequency.org. That's hot takes plural at criticalfrequency.org. And we want to take a quick minute to thank all our guests who joined us on this inaugural season. We had Mira Subramanian, mm-hmm. Wen Stevenson, Maddie Stone, Sarah Miller, mm-hmm. David Wallace-Wells, Samantha Montano, and Eric Holthouse. So pretty Yay! awesome lineup. Yeah. We're looking forward yeah. to We have lots of, of guests on our wish list for season two already. But if you have a suggestion mm-hmm. for someone, definitely shoot us a note on that too. 
Yeah, you can tweet at us. You can email us. There's all sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to thank all of you for listening, for telling your friends about the show, for rating and reviewing us on iTunes, and just generally being a great community. We really do love y'all. Um, and this this podcast is a labor of love. So mm-hmm. thank you so much. Yes. Yeah, seriously. Thank you. And uh, if you have not reviewed or rated us on iTunes, you can still do that. Again, we only accept positive reviews. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Negative reviews just like kind of go through the cracks. Um, so, yeah, you know what? If you have a negative review, uh, you can send it to us by Messenger Pigeon. Yes. Um, and there's instructions for that on our website at <laughs> www.gofuckyourself.com. Um, <laughs> okay, I'm drunk. Yeah. Let's go. Fuckyourreview.com. Um, okay. Yes. <laughs> and on that note, right. goodbye. We'll see you soon. All right. Bye, y'all. Bye. Hot Take is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency. The show is reported and written by Mary Hegler and me, Amy Westerveld. Our mixer is Tyler Morissette. You can find Hot Take wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at The Real Hot Take. And leave us a reading or review wherever you're getting the show. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>